and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran and 10 years ago in 2011, Portugal Tuma and I started 10 by 9 in the Black Box in Belfast and we love it. You can find all our events and all the things you need to know about us and more at our website, 10by9.com. We've been on Zoom since the start of the pandemic, and we'll be staying there until it's safe to return to the black box. But we will return. Now, there are three stories on this podcast for you. They were all told at different events in 2020. First up is Eliza McCafferty. Eliza told this in October when the theme was fear. See Naples and Day. This is the thought running through my mind as I sit at a kitchen table light a cigarette and stare out the balcony doors that open onto an inky darkness beyond. I've been dropped off at an apartment. It is the dead of night. There isn't a soul about and not a sound to be heard. I don't know where I am. There is no phone to let home know I've arrived okay and I've no key. I was the last person standing on arrivals and a tall willowy woman with a faraway look in her eye approaches me and asks if I am Jane who has flown from London. No, So she goes back to her spot. After the crowd's clear and even the airport staff leave, I ask her if she is the headmistress from the language school I'm due to work in. Yes, she exclaims in a shrill voice and asks if I'm sure I'm not Jane who has flown from London. I'm sure I tell her, I'm Elizabeth Jane and I've flown from Belfast. I reserve judgment, wondering if my name and my dairy address on my CV have thrown her to Jane from London. But my instinct tells me to be wary of this woman with the watery blue eyes. She tells me someone will come and collect me the next day. They don't. A friend who did a rail trip around Europe said to me before I left that he and his mate had got off at the station at Naples, took one look outside and got back on the train and went straight back to Florence. He didn't want to burst my bubble, but I should be wary. My guidebook warns of the best thieves in the world here. It advises that if you must carry a bag, to keep it on the street side of the road so thieves and mopeds can't steal it. Later in the day, the front door opens and I can hear a person moving in the kitchen. I venture in and I'm greeted with a tanned, friendly man with a beard. He is an American who teaches at the school. He didn't know I was coming, but this is par for the course. He showed me how to get to the school and got me a key and took everything to do with me, unlike the headmistress, who I called Lestrega after an infant in one of my classes told me the word when he pointed to a picture of a witch I'd drawn for Halloween. She told me that she'd bring me to the other school in Naples so that I'd know the way for when my classes started. She drove me two days in a row, even though I was to get the train. She was a nightmare. I'm wary on my first trip out to explore. It isn't the beggars, heroin casualties, hookers, or the unsavouries that greet me at Central Station that alarm me, but the traffic. It accosts you as soon as you step out from the cover of the station. The light of a wide open sky glares over an expansive square of cars, buses, trams, people, horns, bells, shouts, scrapes and brakes, and there are no road markings that I can see. Everyone is going where they want to go, so I do the same. I make a run for it and fly past the traffic and obstacles to arrive sometime later unscathed at the far side of the square. My real trip friend is right. It is like a layer of hell from Dante's Inferno, but the trip across rewards me with glimpses of paradise. I walk down the glamorous Via Chiaia, 
past elegant shops like ones on Victorian Christmas cards, and I reach the shorefront. I am dazzled by the light on the bay and the wide expansive vista with Vesuvius to my left and the high slopes of buildings behind me, arcing round the bay like cedar boxes with the sea for a stage. Standing at Castel del Ovo, I am as lost to the bay as Partenope, who drowned herself here after failing to lure Ulysses with her song. The students, children and adults alike, had a cruel nickname for her that I can't repeat, and they'd ask me how I was getting on with her. Her dizzy, faraway appearance hid a malevolent undercurrent. On one occasion, this headmistress brought me to a primary school for a meeting with a headmaster. I hadn't enough Italian at that stage, but I could get the gist of the conversation. She was trying a hard sell, pimping me out as a language teacher, but he resolutely refused, saying I would be unable to discipline a huge class without Italian. She persisted, but he wouldn't back down. She didn't smile or try to be pleasant. At one point, he offered me a sweet from a crystal bonbon dish, no doubt usually offered to a child as a parent, and his Neapolitan shrug and roll of the eyes to me said he was incredulous. It was the only time I ever saw her defeated. My mother flew over for a visit, and on her last day, I should have been free from late afternoon to see her, but Lestrega added a new class that evening without warning me. I had no way to let my mother know. These were the days before cheap flights, so coming over again soon wasn't realistic. Another time Lestrega said, come here, realising I was growing tired of her antics, and in front of a full classroom said, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to your new teacher. I hadn't the sense at that point to say no. However, I got to explore more and visited Spac in Napoli, a long narrow street meaning split that cuts Naples in half. In a church there, there are paintings by Caravaggio on all of the walls. The light and the dark of his craft reflects the character of the city. Opposite is a black church with steep, strange perpendicular steps adorned with black painted skulls and crossbones. I felt uneasy here and didn't go in. The decoration and the name Church of the Souls in Purgatory repelled me. In fact, I didn't pick up the courage to go in until many years later on a trip back to see friends. My main thought on that visit was how frightening the traffic is. And I find it hard to believe that I actually drove here without incident. Well, there was one. I missed a turn coming out of a factory I was teaching at, and Lestrega had timetabled me for a class straight after, only in a different town. I was under pressure, and I got lost in the narrow cobble streets cluttered with parked cars. I could see a carbonary car make a left turn up ahead, so I thought if there's space for that, then there's space for the Fiat Punto I was driving. There wasn't. I got a bit down the street, but then got wedged between the lines of cars on either side. I accelerated, hoping to break through, but this pushed me higher between the cars and I was off the ground. I was in a terrible panic and boiling hot, so much so that the window steamed up. There was no one around. And the carbonary disappeared off at the end of the road. I accelerated harder and I clunkily and noisily rose up out of the car window sandwich and landed on ground again. I put the foot down, moving more freely, but I left a trail of wing mirrors and debris in my wake. I got to my class shaken but remarkably the car had only two deep gashes in the passenger door. It took ages for my heartbeat to settle. The Strega didn't notice the door for some time, so I was able to lie to her happily that I didn't know what happened to the car the day before. 
She sent me to a class in a swanky neighborhood. I walked along the bay as far as Pasilipo and got the funicular to Via Manzoni above. In the silence there was just a breeze. I took in the panorama of the bay with Capri and Ischia in the distance and Lake Averno, the entrance to the underworld and the flaming fields on the other. I was at peace here and I found a tranquility that was at odds with the clamour and chaos of the city. The only fly in the anointment was Listrega. Having been warned of the dangers of this place, the thieves, Vesuvius, the traffic, the biggest menace was the headmistress. I learned to my dismay that I wasn't getting paid what I was due. I was illegal and that tax and other deductions were bogus. My hours were getting ridiculous and at one point I had to be in three different places at roughly the same time. I'd mastered enough Italian without the lesson she promised me to negotiate most what she owed me and leave for home. Vini Vidi Vici, I came, I saw, and I conquered. Ah, poor Eliza. I'm guessing the Carabinieri are still looking for you in Naples, but thank you so much. And that story was told at a collaboration with the Roe Valley Arts Centre in Limavati, and we are teaming up with them again in February. Check out our events page on the website. There are plenty of opportunities for you to tell your story. And if you're more a visual person, you can see Eliza telling her story on our YouTube channel, along with almost all the stories and more from our Zoom era. Now, people have often told us they have stories that they'd like to tell, but they don't last 10 minutes, so we like to gently remind them that 10 minutes is a limit, not a target. And here's a great example of a shorter story that does everything that's needed. It was July, and the theme was Small World. Here's Karen Hetherington. It is an undisputed fact that sometimes life presents us with the most curious coincidences. The following account relates to one particular person at a distance of around 11,000 miles. The person in particular is a lady named Rita, who originally hailed from the Shankill Road, but relocated to the suburb of Yarville, Melbourne, along with her husband and their infant twins, a boy and a girl, if my memory serves me correctly, sometime in 1954. They didn't settle immediately and came back to Belfast a couple of years later after a bout of homesickness, only to return to Australia after a year or so, and there they remained. In 1976, my aunt also re relocated from Belfast to Yarraville, and in 1982, we began to go back and forward to visit. We met and became friends with Rita and her family, and always spent time with her when we were in Australia, and more seldom on her visits back to Belfast which became even more seldom as she grew older and less able to travel, and as her remaining family here became more scant. On our penultimate visit to Belfast, which would have been around 1998, we took Rita out for lunch in Grace Nails and Donica Day. She loved the atmosphere of the place and was keen to write in the guest book. She signed her name, left a comment and a record of where she was visiting from, and then she excitedly called us over. What are the chances of that? She exclaimed as she pointed out the previous entry, which had been made by a woman who lived a couple of doors down from her in Yarville just the day before. What were the chances indeed? 12 years later in 2010, Rita returned to Belfast for what would be the final time. She was by this stage very much in her twilight years and we took her for a drive around the county down countryside where she marveled at the beauty of our weak country and how easy it was to access the sea from pretty much anywhere. When we returned to Belfast, she asked us for a small favour. Could we possibly take her to see her friend May? 
They had been very close in their youth, but hadn't set eyes on each other for over 50 years. They had communicated for a while by telephone in the early days, which was initially a very costly form of communication, and thereafter by Christmas card with the occasional letter thrown in for good measure. It wasn't a big detour, and we were delighted to be able to reunite the long-lost friends, so we drove to Mayo's house, as requested, where Rita excitedly knocked the door, which went unanswered. Rita, knowing she would probably never be back in Belfast again, was undeterred and persevered knocking the door and ringing the bell. When she started looking through the windows, the next-door neighbour came out to ask questions, and we were totally dumbfounded to hear that May was not at home, as she had gone on holiday to Australia. Rita, disheartened and bemused, remarked that she should have written ahead to tell May her travel plans, but could think of no reason why her friend, being of the age she was at the time, would have made the trip to Australia. And an even more bizarre twist to this extraordinary tale, Rita arrived home to a note from May to say that she had called at her house looking for. This was relayed to us soon after, and we found it beyond belief that the two old friends were on opposite sides of the world looking for each other at the same time. Sadly, the two were never reunited, as not long after returning home, Rita suffered a bad stroke and died about six months later. She and her family never did find out why May had gone to Australia. As far as they were aware, she had no family there, no other friends except Rita. It really was the most peculiar case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, Karen, thank you so much. I just find that really heartbreaking. It is, it is quite sad, isn't it? Really? Yeah, just such an awful... Oh. It really is. Oh, thank you. It's such a delight to see you. Well, they, they, did, they did try anyway. Yeah, that's they true. Tried to get together. And traveling to Australia at that time in life, ooh, yeah. or, or back again, mm, it's not easy. It's a bloody um, long way, <laughs> as I say. Yeah, indeed. I do still think that is so sad, but wonderful. Thanks, Karen, so much. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. We genuinely appreciate it. Or if you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. Now here's our third and final story in this podcast, and it comes from me. The theme was peace, and it was November. I had never knowingly met a Protestant, but all was about to change. It was the summer of 1976. I had just turned 11, Dancing Queen and Don't Go Breaking My Heart were the summer number ones, and I was about to meet my first Protestant. Now, technically, I had met Mrs. Cooper, or at least I had seen her when she came to our house to visit Granny, and she was a Protestant. She had all the refinement of Queen Mary, but I had not really spoken to her. Children didn't have chats with adults in those days. But now I was about to go on a cross-community holiday with a local organization that took deprived children from one community away to meet equally deprived children from another community in a neutral setting. My hopes had been raised that I might get to go to the Netherlands like my friend Vanula, or even to the USA like my friend Ian, but it wasn't to be. I was going to County Down to Glebe House to a place called Kilcleaf. I was disappointed not to be getting on a plane and going abroad, but to be honest, County Down, which is about 70 miles from where I grew up in Derry, seemed fairly exotic. There were a few of the gang from my street going too, so it was an adventure. We arrived at Glebe House, a big 
Georgian-style country house, half covered in ivy. It seemed massive. There was a really kind and generous feel to it all. The smiling leaders, apart from the one grumpy one, the food, which was plentiful, and the rooms where we all slept in bunks. It was fantastic. This wasn't like a normal holiday where parents were always there to spoil things. It was all boys too, so no pesky girls to get in the way. This was going to be fun. And it was. We were taken up the Mourne Mountains to camp overnight, and I remember we were all supposed to share the load of the backpacks, but I insisted on climbing up with mine the whole way because this was a challenge. And when we took them off, it felt like we were going to float into the air. We went canoeing, things we had only seen people do on the television. We were always busy. We went into the local village to buy sweets with whatever pocket money we had. I could see the headlines in the papers on the counter about three children called Maguire getting hit by a car and killed. But as we had no TV on this trip to watch the news, no one talked about it. In fact, come to think of it, we never really talked about the outside world at all or the differences between us or our lives. But then maybe talking wasn't their thing. One day we were all out on a walk. I remember blazing sunshine and a country road. And I was chatting to a boy who told me he was from Ards. Now I had no idea where Ards was. Turned out he meant Newton Ards. But he asked me if I was a Catholic and I said, yes. And he said he was a Protestant. Now he must have said it loudly because the leader, the grumpy one, probably a teenager now when I look back on it all, but he was leading the walk and he told us all to stop walked back to where we were, drew his arm back and slapped the boy from Ards right across the face. We don't talk about Protestants and Catholics here. Here, we're all the same, he said. The walk continued in silence. My new friend, my Protestant friend, didn't cry, but I remember when we got back to the house, we all gathered round and asked if he was going to do anything about it. And of course he wasn't. This was 1976, no one listened to children. I don't really remember anything else from that trip, but I know I never saw that boy from Ards again, but then again, why would I? Now the summer of 1979 was a whole different ball game. Gary Newman and the Boomtown Rats were the sound of the summer. Puberty had just raised its head, curiosity was aroused, and suddenly, out of nowhere, another chance came to meet Protestants, because I doubt, any of us had met one since that trip to Kilcliffe. A week at Corrymeela was on the cards this time. Now, Corrymeela, for those who aren't familiar, is a community in Ballycastle which has been dedicated to peace and reconciliation before we even knew we needed peace and reconciliation here. And off we went. And I remember the little cabins which housed four people in bunks. I remember we were kept busy with activities like the ghost hunt down at the old abbey in the dark. We did more canoeing. We played table tennis and I seem to remember a lot of table tennis. And I remember a very inappropriate flirtation between a member of staff and one of our leaders. And I mean very inappropriate or maybe that's just how it seemed to testosterone fueled teenage minds. There was plenty of food too. And there was talking. We were allowed to talk about our differences and backgrounds without fear. But most of all, there were social events in the evening like discos. And that's when I met Gwen. Gwen from The Fountain. Now The Fountain may sound rather grand, but it was just another poor housing estate in the same city as me. 
but there was little chance that I would ever have met Gwen as it was and is a Protestant housing estate. So at the dance in the evening, I was cajoled into taking Gwen from the fountain for a slow dance, as if I knew anything about what I was doing. Later, we went back to the room I was staying in, though goodness knows why, because I was so naive. But anyway, we sat on the bed, talked, sipped from our cola bottles, and then we kissed a little bit. Now, I'd love to say fireworks exploded for us both, but hardly. But hey, at least I had kissed my first Protestant and I could go back to school in September and boast. Corrie Mila had done its work. Peace and reconciliation. On the bus home to Derry, I was coached by an older boy that I had to sit with Gwen from the fountain and put my arm around her all the way home. Ridiculously, I did. It must have been so uncomfortable for her, but she was kind and snuggled in for the whole journey. My arm felt like it would fall off. Interdenominational relationships were not easy. As we arrived at her, at her stop first, we kissed goodbye. It's possible she pretended to be upset, but maybe that's just wishful thinking on my part. Needless to say, I never saw Gwen from the fountain again. God bless Protestants. Oh, Paul, what could have been? <laughs> <laughs> the one that got away. One time when I was, I used to lead Corimela, somebody phoned me up from a political party, a nationalist political party, and they said, here, before we get on to talk about, you know, our business, can I just tell you a story about my time in Corimela when I was a youngster? And I said, did you kiss a Protestant? And he said, I did. Her name was Victoria. And um, Victoria and Gwendolyn exist in my mind as the kind of Protestant names of girls that used to go to Corrymeal in the 1970s. So there we are. Magnificent. I've always said all the best people went to Corrymeal. Now, if you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9, go along to the guidelines page on our website, 10 and get in touch. We are always, and I cannot stress this enough, always looking for storytellers. I'm going to ask a small favor. If you enjoy this podcast, could you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your fix at 10 by 9 and give us a rating and maybe even a short review. We would be so grateful because it helps get us noticed. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran. So blame me. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye. (laughs) 